You have put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise. A sound that resonates that all of heaven and earth may worship you. We tread the hills to meet with you, to see your majesty in all that surrounds us. For it speaks and displays the eternal God of ages, creator, author, victor. In love, you established an everlasting covenant with your people, and it's your love that captivates us. As children of the King, we rush in as waves unrestrained, overcome, overwhelmed, that the King crowned in glory and splendor would reach down to place a crown upon our heads. So we raise our banner, the banner we boldly stand under, the banner of Jesus Christ. From dusk to dawn, from age to age, your praise resounds in all the earth, deliverer, Redeemer, ruler of an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. We trust in the name of Christ Jesus, the only King forever. Welcome to Zion's Redemption Radio. This is Fundamentally Mormon. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. You can find this at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. And the text will also be posted on my Facebook wall at facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977. You can also find the text and the audio to this radio program on iTunes at Fundamentally Mormon and in the different Facebook groups that I am an admin of. Some of those groups are LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussions, LDS Gospel Mysteries, Latter-day Unity, and others. You can find the pages that I admin also on my Facebook wall. And if you enjoy this program, please friend request me or follow me and uh, make me one of your close friends. We try to put out as many episodes as we can during the week, but I'm thankful for you to be here today. Let's get right into the reading today. We are going to be reading out of Ogden Kraut's books. You can find his books for free to read online at ogdenkraut.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. Welcome to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. This is the 20th day of September 2021. This is Fundamentally Mormon. Coming to you live, and we're going to be continuing on with Chapter 9 of United Order, A Glimpse of Success, pages 115 through 142. So it's going to be a pretty big chunk today. Uh, Let's see if we can get through it. So like I said, this is the program for September 20th, 2021 at 8 p.m. Mountain uh, Standard Time. 
7 p.m. Pacific, which is when I try to go on live Monday through Thursday. The call-in number is 917-889-8827. You can push 1 to join the conversation. There are 50 lines available to listen or to, uh, you know, to, to join the conversation. You can also listen online at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. And uh, you can listen to the uh, recordings after the fact uh, on iTunes at, uh, by searching Fundamentally Mormon in your uh, podcasts, wherever you get podcasts at. Will the time ever come that we can commence and organize this people as a family? It will. Do we know it? Yes. What was lacking in these revelations from Joseph to enable us to do so was revealed to me. Brigham Young, Journal of Discourses, Volume 11, page 326. Some of the members of the church were given revelations and manifestations to convince them of the importance of the law of the United Order. For them, this principle was of divine origin, and they had a religious conviction that it was true. Others were touched by the spirit of it when they heard it and received a testimony that it was to be obeyed. For example, Charles Walker described his convictions when he heard of its announcement um, Sunday February 15, 1874, Uh, this is what he wrote. Went to meeting all day. Brother Brigham spoke in a powerful manner with a spirit that went to the hearts of the people, saying that the time had come for this people to enter into the order of Enoch. He said, the Lord said, come, the spirit said, come, and said, meaning the first presidency, we say come and enter and let us enter into the united order and devote our labor time talents means strengths and abilities to the building up of the zion of our god said if we would enter into it we should have wealth and union and the blessings of the most high would attend us if we would not receive it, we should bring cursing, curses upon ourselves, and the sin would lie at our own doors. He said that now was the time, not tomorrow or next year, but right now, today. He then called for a show of hands of those who are willing to enter the order to be controlled temporarily in all things to the building up of Zion, The vote of hands was unanimous with very few exceptions. At least I saw none, none, no contrary vote. And after meeting, I authorized H. Irving, the clerk, to put my name down as willing to join the United Order. Charles Walker Journal, page 382. Another man by the name of Orton received a wonderful manifestation concerning this order and wrote, quote, The United Order was thought to be established by President Brigham Young. An evening meeting was called to consider the matter and organize, anxious to be in harmony with its spirit, yet not filling its inspiration on the evening previous to 
two times set for its organization. Kneeling in secret, I made my wish known. I slept just before rising in the morning. A voice was heard in a tongue unknown to me, given apparently in poetry about the same as a common um, stanza. Asking for the interpretation of the tongue, it came instantly and thus or ran thus, quote, so this is the quote of the tongue of the voice that he heard right before waking up in the morning, I guess. Without the united order, we cannot become one. With uh, Without the united order, angels cannot hold communion with us, a people. The dead cannot be raised, nor Jesus come to dwell with his people. I said, it is enough. I am prepared to give my name as a member of the United Order tonight. Autobiography of Joseph Orton, page 22. So uh, we're on page 117 now. Among the many who initially joined these orders were... There were a few faithful and stalwart men who were willing to unconditionally sacrifice their time and talents towards its success. They were men who would not let petty jealousy, discouragement, nor the faults of others prevent them from obeying the law of the Lord. Several orders became successful because of such members and leaders. A few of these Success stories will be briefly described. Rich, uh, Richfield, Brigham City, and Orderville. Richfield. Richfield had a population of 145 families by March of 1874. Most of them were Danish immigrants who lived in one-room cabins but had a few possessions. Joseph A. Young, son of Brigham Young, had been called in 1872 to preside over the wards in Sevier County, and in the spring of 1874, he went to St. George and witnessed the first organization of the United Order there. After his return home, he immediately set up the order in each of the eight communities in the Sevier Stake. Two-thirds of the people were willing to enter the orders, but some, even a bishop, felt to concede to this principle. It was decided to retain individual ownerships, such as homes, animals, etc., but all else was turned in at appraised values. The order got off to a rather poor start with everything on an experimental basis. Page 118, and we're 10% through with the reading for today. The first cooperative program was in construction as there was a great need for homes, roads, and buildings. However, these were considered dead properties as they did not increase wealth or create uh, produce for trade. In August, Erastus Snow visited Richfield and explained the principles of incorporation which were discussed and voted on in mass meetings. The order was incorporated with authorized capital of one million with shares valued at 25 um, par. One of the items considered was the prevention of members withdrawing their invested capital. 
Board meetings were held every two or three days to grant requests of the members. Requests for cash, traveling, etc. had to be approved. Later, an executive committee was established to carry the load of the business and to economize time. Each family was given an acre lot to raise garden vegetables. There were, of course, differences in home gardens due to the ver- the differences in the ability to produce and differences in family size. Wages were based on an eight-hour day in 1874 with a standard fixed at $1.50 a day. No wages were actually paid, but earnings were entered into the books as credits to be drawn against the necessary supplies. Because of disappointing crop yields, however, it was impossible impossible to pay the credits earned with crops produced and goods and services available from the mechanical departments. Page 119, 14% through with the reading for today. The majority were reasonable and courageous and willing to accept adversity as the price of the ultimate success, but there were there were many who took a very selfish view and demanded a book value of their earnings in-store pay. The board of management was harassed with requests that it could not just justly meet. And quote, United Order of Richfield F. Fox, Utah Historical Quarterly, Volume 32, page 367. In 1875, Joseph A. Young met an untimely death, and his family had to draw heavily upon the stores of the order. Half of all the capital in the order had belonged to him. In mid-January 1877, ZCMI made demands for payments of goods purchased by the order for its cooperative store. Other purchases of cattle, machinery, etc. caused a shortage of grain, and by May of 78, the members were put on rations of eight pounds of flowers a week for all members over 10 years old. In addition, for additional means of relief, some of the men were sent to earn cash wages at a mine near Beaver, which they turned into the order for credit on the books and were allowed 15% for personal use as encouragement. In the year 1874, when the order operated on the gospel plan of living as though all were of the of a family, accounts were small of of small importance, but they were absolutely essential under the requirements of the corporation plan. A member of the board stated that the order was carrying 100 non-producers, by which he doubtless meant those. Whose char- who charged charges exceeded their credits. He favored rigid limitations on supplies turned to those in debt. We're on page 120, um, and we're at 17% through with the reading for today. In a united order, you're going to have producers and you're going to have non-producers. And all that means is that you have to have mechanics who fix things and... Uh, you know, you have to have people who are doing things for the order to help the order go along 
but they're not producing anything as far as like uh, timber or uh, rocks out of a quarry or, you know, building homes or manufacturing anything. These people are these service people who serve the community, but they don't produce anything as far as like crops or cattle or anything like that, but they still have to be taken care of. Anyway, continuing on, Bishop Siegmiller more kindly disposed, remarked um, that it would not be right to cut off supplies so abruptly. Meanwhile, the directors were learning about individual differences, that some would work for the glory of God while others only when hungry. End quote, United Order of Richfield F. Fox. Utah Historical Quarterly, Volume 32, page 373. Because of the many non-producers in the order, for example, one had only earned $10 credit in six weeks. So I guess it's not talking about people that I was talking about, but these were actually just lazy people who didn't want to do anything. Um, Efforts were made to bring such members back into line. They were first urged, then commanded, then at last expelled. One man was given $100 to assist in his housekeeping. In five weeks, he asked for $15 to pay some debts in Provo and to redeem his watch. Such men could never achieve any financial success in the private enterprise system and certainly were of no asset to the United Order. As mentioned, Joseph Young's family drew heavily, heavily upon the order, and it was, and it became more difficult to keep the ship from sinking. They adopted another program called the United Family Organization, which was adopted by eight families. One of these members wrote, "Without any or but little help from the outside, they have, while fulfilling their duties to the United Order of Richfield." and amidst many difficulties, been able to erect a dining room and six sleeping rooms and are prepared to build more as soon as time and means permit. We're on page 121 at 21%. So far as the experiment is concerned, it has been highly successful, and although our fare is humble, yet we all feel contented and happy and feel the spirit of love, order, and unity among us. We feel that we have been greatly blessed thus far in having been, by the providence of our Heavenly Father, able to accomplish so much with so little. Our little community numbers about 42 souls, although not all of us as yet living together on account of want of room. There is also a Joseph City, a, in Joseph City, a few families living together on the same principle. Let me say for my own part that as in my youth, in the old country, it was given to me in answer to my prayer. The gospel as preached by Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints was true and from heaven. So also, when President Brigham Young preached the principles of the United Order, it was given unto my understanding that it 
emanated from heaven for the benefit of the Latter-day Saints. This is the testimony of your humble servant, Henry Edward de Solis. Deseret News, July 4th, 1877. The death of Joseph A. Young and the loss of his leadership and business ability left the order in confusion. A letter was written to Brigham Young inquiring if it would be proper to make everyone stewards over their property as had been done in Salt Lake City. President Young replied that it was his advice to continue the order without changes. Page 122, 24%. Quote, For you to change your method of doing business to that of stewardships would make would be taking a step backwards and not be in accordance with our feelings. So far as we know concerning your operations, you have been doing well, and the prospects before you are encouraging. What can you possibly gain by changing your system? What end can be accomplished by your turning back? We cannot perceive any good that will result. It is, it is union of the people, their means and their efforts that are wanted, and the shortest cut to that is the best. We deem it advisable that at certain convenient times to be decided by yourselves, general meetings of the order be called at which the work be done, the products raised, and the other results of the labor of the order can be discussed. At such meetings, it should be decided how much tithing shall be paid by the order collectively, and the statement of the amounts and kinds should then be drawn out and should be signed by each head of the family in the order. This statement should then be carefully filed away for future reference. Instead of paying tithing when the perfect, when we perfect the order, we will pay what we want, which will be used in building temples, supporting missionaries, assisting the poor, etc., and ultimately there will be no poor with us. Signed Brigham Young, and that is taken from United Order of Richfield F. Fox, Utah Historical Quarterly, Volume 32, page 375. Page 123, 27%. The Richfield Order was collapsing with the problems that some of the others were. It was that some of the problems of these failing were no return to capital, no extravagance, consumption, and no individual claim to surplus. When men failed to realize the principles of the order as a brotherhood structure, could not take strain, often the cry of priestcraft instead of priesthood would be heard, and it would mean be the means of the death of the order. For several months, semi-monthly meetings were for the purpose of solving problems and conflicts between property owners and non-owners. Others encouraged and lost faith, saying, I'm leaving the order because there is no order in it. The Apostle Erastus Snow saw the ugly hand of disunity 
and suggested disincorporation, but if you still wanted to see it through. Opposition turned into two groups, one that wanted to make it prosper and the other that wished to see it destroyed. In 1877, the troublemakers burned hay and machinery belonging to the order. Amidst the dying embers of those ashes went the last glimmer of hope for the success of the United, of the United Order of Richfield. Brigham City. That's pretty sad. You've got people who claim to be saints who are destroying other people's property because they don't want the United Order anymore, but they couldn't just leave it. I don't know, but I think that there was some control that maybe wasn't right and that those members maybe saw that, but without being an expert in these things, I couldn't say anything more than to speculate. Anyway, continuing on, Brigham City, a little fort with dirt floors, leaky roofs, and many bugs was built in Youngsville, but as the population grew to 75 families, it was made a city called Brigham City. Lorenzo Snow was assigned to preside over this little community, and with his wisdom and devotion towards its success, it became the furthermost example of unity and financial success and the United Order system. Page 124, 31%. Lorenzo Snow started a co-op at Brigham Young, our big Brigham City in 1864 with the basic goal of being a united order, a fort, a grist mill, a sawmill, and a few other prerequisites were there to begin with, and Lorenzo persuaded some of the merchants to unite their efforts and stock and form a Brigham City cooperative system. It began as only a joint stock enterprise with dividends which could be used only for locally purchased merchandise. The principal objective was to make it succeed throughout home industries for a cooperative system for the general welfare and interest of the community. They built a large two-story tannery building, then came a shoe shop that employed eight people who turned out new shoes and boots. After that, another two-story building for their woolen mill, which in turn opened the way for them to build a large herd of sheep. Cattle also became another necessity, necessary part of the program, and by 1874, 10 years after its birth, the Brigham City Enterprise had almost totally absorbed the entire economic system of the community. There were 40 enterprises that made the community almost self-supporting and had a surplus to sell in other towns. By 1877, there were about 340 people employed with 585 shareholders and an annual income in excess of $260,000. The number of families in the town was just about equal to the number of shareholders. The accounts are kept separately for each department of labor, and at the end of each year, a balance sheet was made out reporting gains or losses. 
from information on this report, dividends were made on the investment or capital stock to be shared equally by the stockholders. Wages were paid in merchandise. Page five, uh, page 125, 35%. Lorenzo Snow was always the overseer in spiritual as well as temporal affairs, and his general attitude was, I have labored to inspire the overseer of the various departments with a proper sense of their obligation to the people to be satisfied with the reasonable wage and be willing that their ability should be employed to the certain extent for the building up of Zion. I endeavor to influence all our laboring hands not to be greedy for high wages and also those who furnish the capital to be satisfied with reasonable dividends and thus work together in harmony on principles of equal justice, that the Lord may take cognizance of our work and bestow blessings of prosperity and salvation in the hour of necessity. And quote, Building the City of God by Arrington Fox and May, page 117, or no, 119. Each Saturday, the employees were paid in script, which could be redeemed in merchandise from any division of the cooperative. They might get furniture, shoes, cheese, bacon, milk, or even exchange for admission to a concert or a play. Their wages were about equal with those with any of those around the rest of the country. It took about eight years for this community to work itself into an almost total United Order system. When the 1874 crusade came for the United Order to be established, by then the Brigham City Cooperative was almost totally self-sustaining. In 1878, Lorenzo Snow reported at Ogden how all of this came about. Page 126, 38%. Quote, To engage in this labor seems to be a great and sacred undertaking. President Young used to say, Why up there in Brigham City, Brother Snow has led the people along and got them into the United Order without their knowing it. But I can see many things that we are very short of accomplishing. We have not entered into the fullness of the principles of the United Order, but we are talking about them, and many of us try to confirm or conform to them and get the spirit of them in our hearts. Now we number about 3,000 souls. And quote, Journal of Discourses, volume 19, page 347. Continuing, he gave an insight into the importance of the system and would what would happen if it was not perpetuated. Quote, Zion is the pure in heart. Zion cannot be built up except on the principles of union required by the celestial law. It is high time for us to enter into these things. It is more pleasant and agreeable for the Latter-day Saints to enter into this work and building up Zion than to build up ourselves and have this great competition which is destroying us. Now let let things go on in our midst in the gen, in our Gentile fashion, and you would see an aristocracy growing amongst us. Uh, 
you would have classes established here and some very poor and some very rich. Now, the Lord is not going to have any of that kind. There has to be an equality, and we have to observe these principles that are designed to give everyone the privilege of gathering around him the comforts and conveniences of life. Journal of Discourses, Volume 19, page 349, and we're at 20, uh, page 127 at 42%. And I agree with the sediments that this, this person is talking about, because Zion community has equality amongst all people. There are no rich and there are no poor. There are no aristocracy. I can't say that word, but you know what I mean. You know, there there is an equality among all the people. It is not given for one man to own that which is above another, wherefore the whole world lieth in sin. And if you'll be an equal or if you'll be assigned people, you must be equal in all things. That's the goal of the law of consecration and of the united order. And the law of consecration without united orders doesn't mean anything. If we're going to consecrate all that we have to God and to, to the building up of the kingdom, there has to be united orders. And the problem that I have is that we have billions and billions and billions of dollars but not one united order there's 16 million members and not one united order the rich in the church do not want to give up their wealth but they don't even have to they should be excommunicated as far as i'm concerned uh but they don't even have to give up their wealth because just in the Enzyme Peak account that was discovered in, well, it was leaked in 2019, I think it was. There were there was billions of dollars in that account. I think it was 129 billion or something to that effect. You can't take a billion dollars and create a really self-sustaining United Order. Could you imagine if they took $1 billion and created 129 United Orders throughout Zion, throughout the earth, and had a perpetual immigration fund to bring people who wanted, who were, you know, could be part of a United Order? I mean, you're not going to have people who refuse to, to work, but, but with a, the seed fund of $1 billion apiece, and that's just, you know, you have $129 billion United Orders. That, that's ridiculous that, that, that not, not one can be created. Like, where is the gospel without being obedient to the commandments that we are supposed to be living in these last days? In Genesis chapter 9 of the Joseph Smith translation, it states that only when people live all that I have commanded that they shall build Zion below and Zion will come down from above and the church of the firstborn will come down out of heaven. That has to happen for Adam and Andiamen to happen. And we don't even have one united order. They say in the temple to consecrate. That's one of the, the things that we do in the temple. We co- consecrate. 
Well, before they decided to take it out, because I was making such a fuss over it, and yeah, it was me, I was the one making the fuss over it, so they took it out. I, um, in the temple, it was uh, the devil came out and he said, all, the, all of you who do not live up to every covenant you've made this day will be in my power. Well, how are you supposed to live the covenant of the law of consecration without united orders? It's a cooperative effort that takes, it, it is something that the church has to do. We, it's, and the thing that really makes me upset is if we individually, as members of the church, now just let you know, I'm no longer a member of the LDS church, not by my own will, but they kicked me out for apostasy for belief in the Adam God doctrine and also for um, my experiences uh, with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, the stake president. And I wasn't trying to tell people this. And back then, I kept these things to myself, but um, my mother-in-law had heard some things and he told the stake president and he asked me directly and I just was very open and I said, yeah, I have seen Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. And he called me a bold-faced liar. His whole face turned beet red, like this man got angry at the fact that this individual that he had never met before, I just moved into that stake, um, had seen the Savior and had seen the Father. So they excommunicated me without a trial. Okay, if it wasn't for that, I'd still be in the church, even though I am critical of the church. But I wasn't as critical back then as I am now because I began to see things. And I knew things before, but um, I don't know. Being excommunicated freed me up to just be blunt about some things. And also, God told me in 2013 after my excommunication to be bold with my witness and to teach the people. So now I'm just like, whatever. I don't care about my membership in the church because they kicked me out. And I don't care about uh, whether people accept me or reject me because whatever, most people reject these things. But I'm going to be bold with my witness and I'm going to talk about the things that I'm going to talk about regardless of the consequences, period. Anyway, so um, so I talk about these things, and I was really bold about this whole idea. You know, the devil and the the endowment. Uh, the endowment was set up no by God specifically to teach certain principles. Every part of the endowment that was given had a purpose. So when the church decides that they want to get rid of things, and then the church members make up the the lousy excuse that, oh, well, the principles are still... If the principles could be taught with less words, then Jesus would have given the endowment less words. That has nothing to do with that. You, you need to keep your hands off the damn endowment because uh, it was given the way it was supposed to be given. But nevertheless, the church took out the part where the devil comes down and he says, all you who will not live up to every covenant you've made this day will be in my power. And when we covenant to live the law of consecration, but we don't have united orders, we're not keeping the covenants that we've made in the temple endowment. 
and so we're under the uh, under the power of Satan. And you've got these individuals in the church who don't care anything at all about consecrating. Oh, they say they consecrate, but they really don't. They're going to build up their empires. They're going to build up their wealth. They're going to keep their things. They're going to have their, um, you know, all of their play toys and all of their nice cars and excessive homes. I mean, not to say anything bad about Elder Uchtdorf. I actually like him, but he has a house in Davis County. He has one in Salt Lake County, and he has one up in Heber City. Uh, Heber City. And they're all multi-million dollar mansions. I mean, they're really nice homes. I don't know if you'd call them mansions, but they're multi-million dollars a piece. Why does he have to have three homes so close to each other? What's the point? Why isn't the first presidency and the 12 apostles living in a united order by themselves? I mean, I saw the home that uh, Russell M. Nelson had before he sold it because he didn't need it anymore because the president of the church actually, they're required to live in a condo uh, that the church owns for security purposes. Uh, so he sold his home up in uh, Davis County. I think it was in Bountiful. But this place was beautiful it was a multi-million dollar home you know and how many cars do they have and how many and i'm not even just just not even like putting the first presidency and the 12 apostles aside you've got so many members in the church that that live in utah and idaho and california and whatnot and they just have a ton of wealth and they don't care about uh, they'll give their 10% maybe but who's to say if they do or not but they don't care about helping other people into having all things in common in a united order and then just myself living in this area in Emory County we have 10 acres that I that I have that uh, we purchased with the home and everything where we live we have five acres where we can hay, where we can grow hay. And there is, we have water shares. I think we have 26 water shares. We have no equipment to do anything. And equipment is expensive. Like, uh, I need, I've got some equipment that needs to be fixed. I've got a hay beller that the neighbor decided uh, to take all kinds of parts off of because this place was abandoned for many of uh, three years, I think before we uh, met the owners and, you know, started uh, in the process of buying this place. So the, the owner of this home had a stroke. Um, I guess it would have been six years ago now or five years ago now. Anyway. And, the woman that lived here, like the man died, uh, he he died. He suffered for quite a while, and then he finally died. And she moved out of this home and moved up with her her son to Logan, Utah. Well, I think they first moved to Taylorsville and then Logan. 
But anyway, so she just left everything, and she told the neighbor that they could use the uh, the five acres with the water to keep the uh, irrigation going and to continue to hay or to whatever. And the, the guy, he, like, didn't do anything with it, really. He watered the property, and he uh, he put his horses out in the field or whatever. And uh, he started taking things off the property. And, like, even before we we met them and moved in here, I used to drive past this place every day because uh, it was on my way to work and it was on my way home. And, in fact, before we even met the people who own this place, um, Kim would be like, well, where are you at? And I couldn't call her until I got to a certain spot because the cell phone reception. And she'd say, where are you at? And I'd say, well, driving pl- I'm driving past our house. You know, and it wasn't for sale or anything, but it was abandoned, and I knew it. And the, I, I just knew it was abandoned. Well, kind of. I mean, people owned it. But anyway, so um, the whole thing is we've got to, we've got old alfalfa. And we need a tractor with 100 horsepower with enough power to rip up and get under the root and tear it all up and then disc it and then restart uh, with another crop because you can't put alfalfa in a field where there's old alfalfa. you got to put something else there for a couple years. But we have to seed it. We have to do all these things. We have no way to do that. I, I saw a tractor on Facebook. Somebody was selling in Wellington for $10,000. It did not have a loader, um, but it would have been it would have been big enough to actually be able to do what we needed to do, but we don't have a disker. You know, we don't have all of the other equipment. We have um, a three-blade ripper that we could use that that tractor would be big enough to 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 get under and to rip it or like turn over the soil. But like there is so much equipment all around that, you know, isn't being used or you see like there's like property where people have multiple tractors and they have multiple tractors because, you know, they'll have a rake on uh, a hay rake on one tractor and, um, I don't know, a uh, a swather that cuts down the hay on another, and then, you know, then they'll have a bailing, uh, a baler on it. It's just like they've got all this equipment, and it's all over the place. But I can't use any of their equipment, you know, and they won't come help us out, so I've got to go out and spend a hundred grand on equipment just to get five acres of hay going, so that I can take care of my livestock. We have nine goats, and then we have chickens and all of that, and we're trying, but if we had a united order, a cooperative society, you know, like we would be able to all contribute towards each other's success, and you wouldn't need... I mean, within a 10-mile radius, I bet there's probably at least 200 tractors or more. 
you know, um, and yeah, there there needs to be tractors because everybody's doing things at different times. But if things were more organized in a united effort, um, you wouldn't need as many or as much equipment, and people could still continue to harvest their crop uh, in an order which will make them prosperous. But then you have people who are friends of ours who say, God, okay, this is a true story. There was a man who used to live in Utah County, and he joined a united effort in uh, Independence, Missouri. And then one day, he comes out to Utah, and he just left his wife and everything. She's like, I don't know what he's doing. He had this, this, he said he had a prompting to go out and help people get their gardens in order. So he contacts me and he's like, hey, can I come down and help you uh, get your garden in order? And this is uh, not this year, but this is last year, I think. Maybe it was this year. I don't remember. Anyway, because uh, everything just runs together. But so this guy, he has this. He's going to come down and he's going to help us get our garden uh, all planted and everything. And we're like, oh, yeah, that would be great. It turns out he wanted to plant his seeds in our garden and let the crop rot so that he could collect the seeds, so that he could sell the seeds and, and use our water and our land and let the crop rot so that he could gather the seeds so that he could sell the seeds. You know, it's this kind of selfish enterprise and this man um, and his lies. I mean, I don't know any other way to think about it because he just had this prompting that God told him that he needed to help us get our gardens in order and then it turns out that it wasn't about our garden it was about our land and him using our land and our water shares to grow a garden so that he could create heirloom seeds to resell and I was just like, what? And the, the other thing, too, like, he was going to try to live at our house and just squat at our house. And we're like, no, we've got flipping seven people in our family, and we have four bedrooms. Um, there's no room for you to stay at our house. Like, I, I don't know. It was just, it was just really... Uh, it was decept- it was deceptive and it was really shady the way he was coming about it, but this man was supposedly like a saint that wanted to live in the United Order, and we found out later on uh, through the rumor mill. So I don't even know what. I, well, I actually forgot most of the things that I was told, but he had been in several United Orders and he'd been kicked out of them, you know, for sh- these sh- schemes that he would try to pull over on the people you know and then there's the other people who are like yeah we want to join in with the united order and and we just want to live at your house and i'm like okay well what are you going to do to produce for a united order 
oh, I don't know, I'll do this and I'll do that. And it's like basically, so you want me to support you while you do these other things and I work my butt off so that so that I can support you. I, I just, I don't know, I don't know. It, I don't know how to live the United Orders. I've read about them and all this stuff, but I, I think it's going to come down to the point where we just have to contribute and help each other because we're going to perish if we don't help each other. You know, um, I don't want to date the program too much for future posterity, but um, in the Canary Islands right now, the there's a volcano that's uh, expected to erupt, and there's a possibility of uh, of a collapse of the volcano, which causes the um, there to be a tsunami. And this has happened in the past, not recent past, but it has happened where the the volcano uh, does its thing, and then it causes a collapse of the Canary Islands or a portion of the Canary Islands, which sends a tsunami towards Brazil and towards all of South America and North America on the East Coast. And this is something that is a possibility and a possible threat right now. Like, it, that could be happening any hour or any day, you know, and maybe it won't happen, but this is something that is a threat right now. So if you had that kind of thing happen, now it'll take the wave seven to nine hours to hit the 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 whole uh, eastern coast of North and South America. Uh, so there's plenty of time for governments and for people of power to get out of Washington, D.C. and out of Baltimore and out of Maryland. But you're going to have millions and millions and millions of people de- uh, killed in this kind of tsunami that could possibly happen if this eruption in the Canary Islands happens. And that's something that's happening now. I mean, by the time this program airs, so today um, I'm recording on the 18th, but this program is being recorded for the 20th. So by the time this program airs, that could have already happened. Hopefully it doesn't, but it could. So um, if that kind of catastrophe happens and with the uh, destabilizing of, uh, you know, through the the natural disasters, like who knows what's going to happen. It says that Babylon could fall in one day or will fall in one day. And I believe that the United States of America is Babylon the Great. And I believe that for specific reasons, which I'm not going to get into right now, but it says it'll fall in one day. And we as Gentiles who proclaim to be Mormons are so intertwined with the system of Babylon the Great that when it falls, we're going to fall with it, you know, and it'll it'll be a necessity to gather together with our remaining resources and to try to figure it out. But like, we don't have any of these United Orders set up beforehand. So are we? how are we going to trust the people that are coming in amongst the orders? I mean, I don't know. I just, we have the blueprints for everything that needs to be done, but we as a people are not willing to live them. And it makes me sad. 
Because we're supposed to redeem Zion, and part of redeeming Zion is living all of these laws and instructions that, that God has given us in the Doctrine and Covenants and through modern revelation. Anyways, let's get let's get off of that topic and continue with the reading. So we're um, 42% through with the reading for today, and we're on page 127. In 1874, Brigham City was put into the United System, although no changes were made in its operations. Each member was made a steward over his possessions, and he had a savings account by saving his certificates of credits with the order. He could use these to improve his home farm equipment. He could spend them for other such things as amusement or extra food. These communities, such as Brigham City, had their own system of insurance, and should someone's home be burned, the community was ready to rebuild another for them. If a man died, the community stepped in to take care of the widow and children. If someone was sick or went on a mission or was required to leave for some business purposes, their family was secure. That is beautiful. That's where it should be. A a correspondent from Salt Lake City Herald visited the Brigham City United Order and wrote a brief synopsis which leaves a nostalgic glimpse of the past and of what might have been. If the examples of the inhabitants of this town was more generally followed, Utah would be far more prosperous and her people much better off. Our present suicidal policies of extorting, exporting raw materials and importing manufactured articles would be stopped. We would be far more independent of our sister states and territories, and the financial panics of the East or West would not affect us. Our people would all have home, good homes and enjoy more of the comforts of life than they can hope for under present regulations. We're on page 128 at 45%. And our children could stand a much better chance of receiving good education and becoming useful members of society. And quote Salt Lake City Herald, October 25th, 1876. Yet in spite of the great accomplishments of, Brigham, of the Brigham City Order, which received visitors from all over the world and had glowing reports written in many different countries, Lorenzo Snow still felt that they had a long way to go. So did John Taylor, who said, quote, There are some things that Brother Lorenzo Snow is doing that are very credible, but it is not a united order. He is, not, or he is working with the people something after the same principle that our sisters teach the little ones how to walk. They stand them in a sort of chair which rolls along and the babies appear delighted and they think they're walking, but they have not yet learned how to walk. Journal of Discourses, volume 20, page 44. Although the Brigham City Order was not a total family order, it had many great advantages during 
the Great National Depression of 1873, a calamity for everyone, including most of the people of Utah. The Brigham City Cooperative continued to run smoothly and was very prosperous. It was a model of good economics and and draws a great deal of admiration from the rest of the country. This cooperative society began to see 15% dividends and on occasion 30% dividends. They had a cotton farm in southern Utah which successfully provided materials to manufacture over 100,000 yards of cloth. Page 129, 48%. They also manufactured $19,000 worth of boots and shoes, and by 1874, they had an annual mercantile business, a county of $250,000. They soon acquired a tannery, a saddle and harness shops, tailored and dressmaking departments and furniture shops, blacksmiths, machines and wagon shops, and even straw hats. In their agricultural department, they had large farms, many herds of cattle and sheep, and the best dairy in the territory, and cheese, a cheese factory. Everyone was employed and kept very busy. Even transients were given work to earn some food. They dug an irrigation ditch one and a half miles long and three feet wide and built a dam 150 feet long. They put out 125 grapevines, 1,800 grape cuttings, and planted 100 peach trees. Their herd of cattle for beef and hides increased to 1,000 animals in four years. Their straw hat factory employed over 20 girls. The employees in various departments are paid weekly at the secretary's office in two kinds of script, one of which is redeemed at our mercantile department, the other is good and redeemed at various manufacturing departments. Biography and family record of Lorenzo Snow, Eliza R. Snow Smith, page 295. Uh, real interesting. So Eliza R. Snow was supposedly Brig- or Joseph Smith's wife um, until he died. He was she was a second wife, uh, although she had no children by him or anyone else. Um, but then she was the uh, the wife of Brigham Young as well. But she doesn't take Brigham Young's last name. She continues to go by Eliza R. Snow, which is her maiden name, but then Smith. So, interesting. Anyway, just no reason to bring that up. I just something I thought of when I was reading it. When Lorenzo Snow went to Europe and Palestine, he wore a suit and boots that were made in Brigham City. He was proud he was proud to show it what it as a specimen of Mormon industry, respectable enough to wear in the presence of the president of of the French Republic. Life of Lorenzo Snow by Thomas R. Romney, page three hundred and eleven, or on page one hundred and thirty, fifty two percent. 
One contributing factor in their successful workforce was, as Lorenzo Snow explained, because of the youth, youth are more willing and pliable in the hands of the servants of God than many men who have been in the church from the beginning. Journal of Discourses, Volume 5, page 65. By the year 1877, the Brigham Order had reached its zenith. One of the first wounds to uh, to afflict it was the loss of farm products because of the grasshoppers. Okay, so that has been about an hour worth of reading so far. Um, I don't like to make these clips much longer than an hour, so what we're going to do now is we'll play part two. Uh, we'll see if Emmett or Kimberly, my wife and my son, have anything to say and uh, also we'll just check the studio line right now the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827 that's 917-889-8827 the phone lines are open during the entire show and any questions or comments can be uh, asked or stated by pushing one and I'll bring you into a call screening room as soon as I can and we'll ask those questions or comments, and then if you desire to be on the air live, we'll take the uh, live callers um, that remain on hold after the reading is over with. But we're only at 53% now, so I'm going to end this first part of the recording, and then um, after a little break, we'll come back and we'll start part two of this chapter so thank you for listening um go ahead kim and emmett is there anybody in the studio uh or any um anyone in the chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally mormon with any questions or comments or do you guys have anything to say Oh, there we go. We, we, I'm we were all muted. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I actually muted everybody because I heard people in the background talking. So I just muted everyone so that that interference would end. Um, but yeah. I am having problems with my studio right now. I did see that there was a caller. Um, yeah, he's not there right now. I think he just hung up, though. Um Okay. It's area code 909. I think that's California. It's Fresno, California. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's 909-368, and then I won't give the last four digits. But, uh, yeah, so uh, the caller who was listening, uh, there are 50 lines available for people to call, as I say all the time. It uh, doesn't mean you have to come on the show. Um, and in fact, if you don't push one, I won't bring you on the show, but I will always uh, check to see if you want to say anything uh, for people who do call in that want to listen to the program uh, using your phone line. Now, you can also listen at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. There is a live uh, listen that is streaming live right now on the Internet. 
at that at that URL, and also there's a uh, a chat room there for anybody who has any questions or comments, and we'll try to get to those. But you said that there's nobody saying anything in the chat room right now either, Emmett. Yeah, no one's in the chat room. I said hello world, but other than that, no one said anything. That's fine. Okay, um, did you guys have anything uh, that you wanted to say before we go on to part two? No, I was wondering what that guy's name was, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, the person who tried to do the thing with the vegetables and the selling the seeds and all that. Oh, well, we are but, not getting exposed his name. I do know who his name was, and you actually yeah, know him. Yeah, I'll have him. to ask you later. I just don't remember yeah. his name at all. I'll have to ask later. Yeah. Hey, it doesn't matter. It wasn't, that wasn't, this, that was like last spring or the spring before that. I can't remember. Um, actually, I think it was, well, mom was pregnant, and we were thinking maybe not doing a garden because I didn't have time and I didn't want mom overworking herself. Um, but I think that was uh, 2020. And uh, for those of you that don't know, we actually had our baby and lost her. Um, so that sucks. But then the year before that, we had a baby uh, that we love to death. He's so freaking cute. And uh, it may have been that year, but I don't remember what year it was that this happened. But um, it's just something that happens, like, People have these schemes, and they are not interested in the United Order. They're interested in lining their pockets, and they're interested in deceiving people. And we've known this guy for many, 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 many years, since 2013. So I guess, I don't know your perspective on how many years that has been, but it's 2021 now. But you know, eight years, whatever. And he's a nice guy, and he seems nice and everything. And we didn't know a whole bunch of stuff about, like, we knew he was in the United Order. And then we've come to find out that uh, he'd been in many different United Orders. And then we found out that he was trying to get this, uh, Kevin Kraut to actually go and do the same thing he was trying to get us to do. And then we found out that he wasn't interested in helping us grow crop. He was interested in planting seeds so he could get these heirloom seeds. And when it came down to it, uh, they needed to let the crop rot. But I don't understand. Like, why do you need to let it rot? Why don't you just take the seeds out of it and try to, like, you know, preserve the the vegetables or whatever? But anyway, it's just. It was stupid. The whole thing was stupid. We're like, no. And the other thing, too, like, he wanted to live on our property. Like, I don't know what he's going to pitch tent. He wanted to come inside and just, I don't even know. I, it was so flaky. Anyway, Kim, um, go ahead. Uh, if you don't have anything to say, I'm actually at the rail yard right now, and i got to dump this load off real quick. So uh, if you guys don't have anything else to say, then you can go to part two, and I will mute myself. Okay. Are you guys there? I have to, yeah, I have to uh, put the girls to bed. They're not in bed all the way yet, and, um, you know, it is bedtime here, so I have to do that. Oh, okay. Hold on. Red light. Three.
uh, not to announce myself when I came into the yard. Anyway, so yeah, um, the next part is 48 minutes. So that's going to take us right up to almost 10 o'clock Mountain Standard Time. So uh, there will no, there will not be any Emmett reading tonight. But if we do have any phone phone calls between then and now. Um, and you do have a question or comment. Uh, if I see uh, line one, I mean not line one. If you push one, it'll show me that you want me to bring you into a call screening room, and then you can ask your question or comment, and maybe we can go into overdrive if that's something that they're interested in doing. So we have three hours available, but I usually try to keep it to two. Anyway, I'm going to mute myself. Emma, go ahead and do part two of this program. Thank you. Welcome. Okay, we're in part two of the glimpse of success of uh, United Order. Um, let's see. By the year 1877, Brigham Order, the Brigham Order had reached its zenith. One of the first wounds to aff- afflict it was a loss of farm products because of the grasshoppers. Then the woolen mills was burned down, which was a loss of more than $30,000. A railroad contract had been agreed to for the Northern Utah Railroad to supply lumber, but in 1878, their mill was raided and 53 mill workers were indicted for unlawfully cutting timber. The sawmill purchased by Brigham City Mercantile and manufactured Manufacturing Association in Marsh Valley had been in operation 12 years before the purchase. After the raid, the foreman of the jury brought it from the association for half price, bought it from the association for half price and kept it running. His supply of timber coming from the same source as before. So the Gentiles basically arrested a bunch of people for cutting timber down, and then they basically bankrupted the lumber mill, and then they bought the lumber mill for half price, and then they went to the same place and cut timber down from the same place as the other people got arrested for, because Gentiles got to be Gentiles, and they can all burn in hell as far as I'm concerned. That's why I don't even care if the tsunami thing happens. Good. I don't care uh, if uh, if the uh, if the coronavirus kills a bunch of people. That doesn't even bother me at all. If I die, and I I die, I don't care. I have an eternal perspective. Um, if the if the vaccines are killing people, like well, you know what? There's been plenty of warnings before these vaccines ever came out that they were going to use vaccinations to uh, reduce population around the globe. So, you know, hey, take them if you got to take them. If you die because of it, it's not my problem. I don't care. Uh, it doesn't, I don't know. I just don't care anymore. I, I've been dealing with this for so long and had so much information and studied all of these things so much that, like, a lot of people are freaking out and they're running around trying to tell everybody how this, that, and the other, and 
I don't care anymore because people don't listen and they never have and they never will. So let them do what they're going to do and things will be the way they're going to be. So anyway, this circumstance proved the dishonesty of the jurors and branded the entire scheme as a product of unprincipled minds and quote life of Lorenzo Snow pages 326 through 327. Lorenzo Snow complained of $400,000 that Brigham City had paid to ZCMI since its organization, and except for three or 4000 worth of cheese accepted by ZCMI, cash had been paid during the last two or three years. The situation was severe, and, and the only answer to their problems was to close several departments and dispose of some property. They needed cash to pay off some of the obligations against the order. They were also, or there were also many internal troubles, which often took up most of the time during the director's meetings, re, rather than concentrating on the usual problems. The order grew, but as the world took on merchandising means of cheaper goods, the order had competition. Money had to be spent for machinery, tools, and articles that could not be grown or manufactured in the Utah Territory. Some crops failed, which caused more cash outlays. At three, at other times, the imports would exceed the exports. Added to these troubles came inferences of the law, and their and their leaders were put in prison or hid in the underground for polygamy. Illegal fines, taxes, and confiscation of property added more turmoil. Then, too, the apostates would join with the Gentiles, stirred up a contention and false charges. Another heavy blow came when, in July of 1878, the Internal Revenue levied a penalty tax of $10,200 on the circulation of medium of the Brigham City Co-op. Although the levy was found to be illegal, they had to pay the tax or be found in contempt of federal law. So the fine was illegal, but the federal government wanted to tax the fine, and if they didn't pay the taxes on the federal Fine or the law that was elite or the fine that was illegal, they would be found in contempt of federal law. Well, that that's Gentile for you know that's that's the way Gentiles operate. They're dishonest as all hell, and they all deserve to burn in hell because that's where they belong. Because that's the kind of crap they pull. So and that goes for every single one of them, even if they are members of the church. I don't really care. The sole purpose of so many attacks against the Mormons was to break up their economical powers. Thus, the United Order was phased out in the summer of 1880, but the Mercantile and the Manufacturing Association continued in an effort to keep the cooperative functioning. Page 132, 59%. In 1881, the woolen mill was shut down, and in 1888, the sev- the severe winter wiped out nearly all of their sheep. Private business sprang up to take the place of the co-ops, and during the depression of the middle 90s, the cooperative institutions founded by Lorenzo Snow came to an end. 
1894, two different fires sent the last vapors of the order into the winds. And in 1895, the Brigham City Co-op went bankrupt during the Great National Depression. The Brigham City Order began with Little Mercantile Store, with a Little Mercantile Store, and ended up with a Little Mercantile Store. Orderville. No other town in Utah has gained as much recognition for their efforts in living the United Order as Orderville, Utah. Its very name has drawn attention to its unique history. This community lived the United Order longer than any other, approximately 25 years. It began in March of 1874 when John R. Young came to Mount Carmel to organize an order there, but it was not long before some members became disgruntled and withdrew. However, others were convinced of the gospel plan and were determined to live it, although they had been a people of little means and still were, they decided to go up the Virgin River and choose a place where they could establish their order. Page 133, 62%. They found the ideal spot in March of 1875. It was remote. The land was fertile. Rangeland was extensive for both winter and summer pastures. There were abundant supplies of, of lumber, coal, and fuller earth nearby. The Virgin River furnished water for irrigation and power. Twenty acres were set aside for a vegetable garden and orchard, while 315 acres were cleared for farming. On the 14th of July, 1875, the town was organized under the name of, the, of Orderville, uh, or the Orderville United Order. There were nine members of the board of directors, and Tom Thomas Chamberlain was president. Chamberlain was an important contributing factor to the success of Orderville. He had at, he had abounding energy and executive ability of a high order. He was honest, handsome, and of a kindly disposition, and had five to assist him. The first building erected was a hotel where all who were in good health could eat at one table. William M. Black was placed in charge of the hotel with seven sisters as, work, as his working force. When the order was in the zenith of its prosperity, those eight persons placed the food upon the two tables for 80 families. The meals were served at 7, 12, and 6 p.m. and were as regular as clockwork. The Mormon United Order in Utah by Dr. Angus Woodbury, page 18. One member recalled that about 300 pounds of flour were made into bread each day and about three bushels of potatoes were eaten at a mill. Page 134, 65%. The order was built up according to the desire of 
desires of Brigham Young on the big family plan, which he designated as the Order of Heaven. Except for a few items, there were no books kept as they deemed it unnecessary to keep individual records of the people. Each year, according to the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Order paid tithing to the church from the net increase. Therefore, individual members were not required to pay tithing. The letter was received. A letter was received from President Young on July 7, 1875, instructing those who wished to live that principle to be baptized into the United Order. So on July 11, 1875, a meeting was held at Orderville. The people of Glendale and Mark Mount Cam- Carmel attending, Joseph W. Young spoke on the principle of the United Order, read the rules, read the adopted rules, and called on all who were willing to obey these rules to make a covenant of the same by baptism. At the close of the meeting, about 50 members of of the order, including John R. Young, William Black, Alan Frost, were baptized. On July 24, 1875, 15 families ate the first community meal in the new dining room. By 1877, the number had grown to 370, and by 1882, the population numbered 602. One member of the order wrote a letter and said, As we learned each other's weaknesses, we also learned their virtues. The love born of constant and daily intermingling caused us to help and to defend each other as would members of an individual family. Perhaps we did invite a few wisecracks in our home, spun clothing, homemade straw hats, homemade shoes, community eatings, arrangements of houses, etc. But we lived a very a clearly normal life and were happy. Page 135, 69%. The order was governed by an annually elected of nine men who supervised the buying and directing of the labor and also heard complaints. Everything was done according to common consent. In Orderville, they secured the title to all land for the order. All persons involved had to deed all real and personal property to the community so that there were no rich or poor, and all things were held in common. In 1876, President Brigham Young visited the order and offered much good advice. One of his suggestions was that each day a record should be kept of the time and the labors of those engaged in that work and that they should credit a man for what he has done. It is a true principle that every person should be rewarded for the labor, for the labor he performs and credit for all the good he do, that he does. Those who lived in Orderville were convinced that the Almighty had given them the laws for living that order 
this was the cement that held them together. It was a comfort in their sorrow and a strength when they were cast, cast down. But even so, there were some who complained for something better or for some change, which in reality was a petition to leave the order. But President Young encouraged them by saying, quote, It was the nearest right in organization and the most successfully run or any that had made the attempt. They had a shoe shop, a carpenter shop, a tannery, a schoolhouse, blacksmith shops, woolen factory, green, a greenhouse, dairy, and a sheep herd. However, the general standard of living were not as high as other communities, yet they had their necessities. Page 136. The town as a whole bore more resemblance to a Christian military camp than to an individualistic society of free men and women. With periodic calls by the United Order bugle, bugler or by the clanging of the dinner bell to arise, to attend prayers, to eat breakfast, to go to work, to eat dinner, to attend evening prayers, and to retire, life must indeed have a military aspect, end quote, Building of the City of God by Arrington Fox and May, page 271. So this sounds like my dream. Um, I actually myself do very well in an organized situation like this. Um, So I don't know if many of you know this about me or not. But um, so growing up in my childhood was very crazy. My dad was a drug addict from the time I was an infant until I was three. And then my mom finally left him. But that, that combined with other influences in my early life led to a ton of confusion and it was just a mess. So my grandparents, helped start raising me by the time I was two years old, um, on and off my whole life until I was 16. My mother married a man who was an alcoholic and he was very abusive. I'm the oldest and he was the oldest and his father was very strict towards him and pretty abusive as well. And so because that's the way he was raised. That's how he tried to raise me. And between the, uh, the, the abuse and the neglect and all of the mess that happened in my early life, by the time I was a teenager, I was in and out of youth homes. And I did very, very well in those youth homes because there was structure where my life had no structure. Um, by the time I was 16, my aunt and uncle were taking care of me. And uh, when I came home from work one day, they had left. And there was a note on the table. And we were renting the single wide trailer in Kaysville, Utah. And they said that I was not their responsibility and that I was on my own. I called my mom and she told me that her boyfriend at the time did not like me. And I was not welcome there. So I had nowhere to go. Um I did become homeless. I ended up living in the rafters of my friend's garage. My friend's mother was a single mother, and she had two boys. And um, 
we put a board and some blankets up in the rafters of their garage, and that's where I slept. And I luckily, I had a motorcycle to get back and forth to work, and I was allowed to go in the house once a day to shower. But all my food and everything else that I had was out in the garage, and that's just where I lived. So I was kind of homeless, but I had a place to go. But I was a mess. Anyway, so I signed up for Job Corps. And um, I originally went to Job Corps. I was going to be a heavy equipment operator. But I also, ever since I was a kid, I, I wanted to do three things, actually, as a kid. I wanted to drive the big trucks. I wanted to drive the trains. And I wanted to fly the airplanes. Well, by the time I got to be 16 years old, I was terrified of airplanes because of things that happened. So my stepdad, the abusive one, the alcoholic, he was a military man. And we ended up uh, living in Okinawa, Japan, and going to South Korea a bunch. And there were some things that happened on one of the flights that just made me terrified of airplanes. Uh, Although the last I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, we went to North Carolina for my wife's father's funeral, uh, who got killed in a head-on uh, collision with a log truck. And um, I had some issues when the, fl- when the plane first took off out of Salt Lake City International Airport. But by the time everything was done and the four flights, So we flew from Salt Lake to Denver, from Denver to Raleigh, and then from Raleigh to Denver, and from Denver to Salt Lake. By the time we were done flying, I was not shaking, and I was completely fine. So so we're going to start flying on airplanes a little bit in the future, as long as we don't have to do the vaccine mandate crap that they're going to pull on us. When that happens, I won't fly anymore. I'm just not going to put that crap in my body. But anyway, I digress. Um, But I wanted to fly the airplanes when I was younger. But I wanted to drive the trucks. And I have have operated trains. Uh, That is the boringest job. I, yuck. I love driving truck. And I I wanted, um, one of the things I wanted to do as a secondary for going into Job Corps was the uh, diesel mechanic program and the advanced diesel mechanics program. Well, I completed the advanced diesel mechanics program. But going back to the whole job core, I loved it there. I absolutely loved it there. We had order. We had um, dorms that we lived in. And... You know, there was guys' dorms, and then there was girl dorms, and then I think they had a married dorm, but I can't remember exactly right now, where people who are married could have a dorm and they could live there on on campus. And Job Corps is for kids between the ages of 16 to 24 years old to get their high school diploma or their GED or um, trade training, and they even offer some college uh, courses. And they provide everything for you as a person like myself who was homeless. I didn't have to pay for any of this. 
everything that I completed, whether it was my GED, which I completed in two days when I first went into Job Corps when I was 16, um, I asked to take the test. I didn't even take any classes for the test. I just passed the GED, which was awesome because, like, I, I, when I was in high school, I would pass in all of the papers um, and I would take all, I would take all the tests, but I, I hated, I hated doing the work, but I passed all the tests all the time and I aced everything. So when I was able to get my GED, it was like two days of testing because they made us do it in two days. I could have done it in one if I needed to. And I passed with 97% overall. Uh, so they said I passed with honors and I got $250 in the bank account for passing that test. And then I went on to trade training and we got up every morning at like six and uh, we could leave the, the dorm at six thirty and and walk down to the cafeteria and eat breakfast and then go back to the dorm and get ready. And then by seven thirty, I think it was, is when classes started and we did our trade training in our individual classes um, until noon and then we had lunch where everybody walked down to the cafeteria and we all had, there was like two different lines. We could have two different type of meals, you know, and then we went back to class to like 3.30 or 4, something like that. And then we had time to... um to, you know, go back to the dorms after the work day. Um, the cafeteria opened up at like, I don't know, 4.30 or 5. And it was open till like 6.30 where we could go down and have another meal. Um, and there were uh, there was a place where we could go dance to do, to do uh, you know, to dance. There was a gym. There was a pool. Uh, there were basketball courts. There were pool tables down at the cantina. Um, there was a little store on on post. Now, Job Corps is like kind of like minimum security prison. Like nobody was allowed to leave until you uh, earned certain um, rights, I guess. And uh, with certain rights, you were able to go to town for a couple of hours a day, Wednesday through sun, uh, Sunday, and then if you had really the honor fours, which I became an honor four, so there was like level zero where you had no rights, you're stuck. Uh, level one, level two, level three, level four, and then honor fours. Honor fours, we had a special bus we could go into uh, to Layton, Utah. So Clearfield Job Corps was in Clearfield, Utah. And uh, we had buses that would take us either to Ogden or to Salt Lake. And we could go either to Ogden or Salt Lake, and then we could do whatever we wanted to do. And then we could get on the bus and go back at like 9 o'clock, and we'd be back to the dorm by 10. And we did our, our chores from 10 to 10 to 10.30 or whatever it was. And then uh, then we went to sleep. And it was really very a lot of order. And I really thrived in that kind of situation. And I would love to be in a United order like that, where it'd be a little different, of course, but like you have a family society. Now there was like 
2,500 people at Job Corps. And we were all different religions, all different races, all, it was just a huge bunch of kids, all between 16 to 24. And there were fights and there were gangs and stuff like that on campus. But, you know, with the exception of that crap that happened, it was really, it it worked. It was really a good place for me anyway. Anyway, but um, to have a united order where we as a family come together and we have a, a home or a place where we can all eat together and we can all go out and do our work with each other, whatever the work is, whether it's farming or herding or milling or timber or whatever it is, boot making or making whatever it is and then I'll go back to a common uh, community and have food one with another and then go back to work and finish our day out and then go and have dinner and then have society where we're together as a family um, in a large society where we can enjoy each each other's company or we can you know if we want to go work out or if we want to play basketball or uh, football, or if we want to go watch movies, or if we want to go play pool and just visit with our fellow people from the from the order, or if we want to uh, go to you know and have dances or special um, opportunities to where we can have plays or any kind of thing like that. Like I love that about Job Corps, and I could see how certain types of United Orders would be very beneficial to having a community of people, you know, a community of like-minded people who all work together to try to provide a living for our families and and to provide a, a community where if you get sick, you're taken care of. If I die, my wife is still taken care of and my kids are taken care of. If I have to go on a mission for the church, I don't have to worry about whether my wife and kids are going to be fed or not. I can do the work of the Lord without having to worry about, you know, without having to worry about them. And um, this is, I think, how United Order should be. Well, continuing on with the reading, the Orderville community never felt the economic fluctuations on the money markets, for they were almost totally self-sustaining. They had their own meat, eggs, cheese, soap, coal, lumber, milk, silk, wool, cotton, and leather products. They didn't feel the effects of the Depression In addition, they were able to furnish material and labor in the building of the St. George and the Manti temples, and they also sent out missionaries. By 1880, the community had the assets of nearly $80,000, which is an astounding gain for those pioneer days. $80,000 back then? I mean, oh my gosh, it's like a billion dollars today. According to instructions from Brigham Young, They were told to keep individual records so that apostates could not sue for an unreasonable sum. The pay rate scale was the same as any labor or occupation within the order. In a few years, Orderville was the most sustained, self-contained town in Utah 
with a surplus of wool, livestock, and manufactured goods to sell in exchange. A sawmill was the first purchase. The flour mill at Glendale was sought for three thousand or was bought for three thousand dollars. A fine grade of leather was made at the tannery and fabrication or fabricated into boots, shoes, harnesses, and saddles. We're on page one hundred and thirty seven at seventy six percent. At the cabinet shop, not only furniture but spinning wheels were made. At the bucket shop, tubs, buckets, barrels, and firkins were manufactured. The making of shingles was another industry. At a ranch 11 miles north of from Orderville, cheese and butter were produced. Molasses was made in large quantities at Moccasin Springs and early fruits and vegetables were grown on a farm at Leeds. And quote, Utah Historical Quarterly, Volume 7, page 149. One of the products for which the order became famous was molasses, which was made from the many fields of sugarcane. For a while, it was the only source of sweetening. The fields produced an abundance of peaches, grapes, plums, and melons galore, Large fields of corn were planted from which hundreds of brooms were made each year. The whole operation was a fascination, even to those who lived there. A week spent at the sawmill, there were always, there was always families living. A trip to the grist mill, the site of logging and sawing of lumber, the different stages of grinding wheat until it became or it came out as flour, which each had its individual charm. We were clearly delighted with a visit to the tannery, shoe shop, cooper shop, and carpenter shop, each having its peculiar attraction. And quote Utah Historical uh, Quarterly, Volume Seven, Page One Hundred and Eighty One. Page 138, 80%. Eventually, there came a time when those living in Orderville were better dressed and better fed than any of their neighbors. During the depression of the late 1870s and the early 1880s, many people sought to join Orderville, the Orderville community. There were those who joined but would not work and some who soon withdrew from the order both of which caused trouble. So in 1879, there were heavy obligations and people were quite pressed for many necessities. Some of the leading brethren met together at a suitable place and petitioned the Lord to help them obtain the means to relieve their distress. It was an answer to their prayer when Charles and Carol came from Heber City and offered to sell his interest in the Silver King mine at Park City. The mining stock was sold for $1,000 and pressing obligations were met and new goods were added to the order. The church determined that the order should continue as they wanted an example left of a good, good united order. The church gave the order charge over a large cattle ranch at Pipe Springs, Arizona, and they almost received the Washington Cotton Factory. 
so that's Washington, Utah, it's near St. George. Some thought the order would soon own the whole bottom half of the state. When mining ventures and railroads brought wealth into the surrounding communities, which, by comparison, left the Orderville people with drab clothing and homemade goods, causing some discontent. Page 139. In 1880, they dropped the communal dining, which caused an individualistic spirit to develop among the people. Three, Three years later... Different kinds of work were given different salary rates. These two small items, as they may seem, caused differences in attitudes of and, of course, opened the door to destroying to destroying influences. Later, there arose a leasing agreement which created richer portions for some and poor conditions for others. Then they b- began... Then they began an order currency, so the wage system began to creep in. Some complained that this was failing away from the original com- commandment, and they left the order. And you know what? It all started with them not having meals together anymore and not being a community, in my opinion. But anyway, in 1885, there were some serious thoughts about breaking up the order, And by 1889, capital stock in the company went out for sale and the order weakened further. In January of 1896, all members of the board were reelected with the exception of one who died a few months previously. These were the last members of Orderville Board of Directors, remaining until July 14, 1900. The order was still financially independent when it was disorganized and negotiations were even underway at this time for the purchase of several cotton mills. However, it was not the weakness of the members, the difficulty of the internal practices, or the stringent rules that caused the order its greatest trouble. It was the federal government. The Edmonds Act of 1885 induced fines and imprisonment for polygamists, for unlawful cohabitation, causing many to leave for the underground. Some of the men were apprehended and sent to prison, including the president of Orderville, uh, Tom Thomas Chamberlain, page 140, 87%. Many of the families in Orderville were plural and escaped from the U.S. March- Marshals who were enforcing the Edmonds Act, Many men went into hiding. Some were caught and sentenced to prison. Apostle Lyman advised the citizens to discontinue the order and quote orderly orderville Nick Carroling, the Trolley Times, page 2. Because the Edmonds-Tucker Law, the government was legally stealing Mormon church land. Some of the leaders were more willing to capitulate with their enemies than to stand up for their rights. It was during this confusion of what was right and what was wrong that the church authorities sent John R. Young, Brigham's first son, to dissolve the order. He couldn't convince them to dissolve, so they had to send another man to do it. Deseret News, September 4, 1874. B3. 
The Apostle Brigham Young Jr. and Heber J. Grant also came to recommend that the order disband so they could make peace with the government or or make peace with the devil's kingdom. Yeah, Babylon the Great. It's one and the same. Gradually, each piece... So, uh, I know this is a little tangent, but, like, we're supposed to have freedom of religion. You know, we're supposed to have these freedoms. But, you know, if you are a threat to the devil's kingdom, then the devil's going to come after you, and the devil is completely... um, entrenched itself within the U.S. government. So, you know, it is what it is. And I I am really a, a constitutionalist, but uh, the government is wicked as hell. Completely, completely wicked as hell. And when you try to live God's laws, the government will come after you. Gradually, each piece of property, equipment, and livestock was transferred, sold, or deeded. It was not until 1900 that the last item, the incorporated order, was phased out of existence. Church historian Andrew Jensen wrote, quote, The good saints of Orderville gained an experience that will never be forgotten by those who passed through it. It was assured by several of the brethren who stuck to it till the last, and they never felt happier in their lives than they did when the order was was in complete running order and they were devoted to their to their and they were devoting their entire time talent and strength for the common good um we're on page 141 at 90% good feelings brotherly love and unselfish motives characterized most of those who were members until the last End quote. Deseret News, March 4th, 1892. On July 14th, 1900, committees were, appo- were appointed and the final celebration was undertaken. One of the inhabitants of Orderville described the big occasion. Quote, Invitations were sent to all who had been in any way connected to the order and their descendants whatever it was, whenever it was possible to reach them and to many others. The result was that all could, all that could be desired. Many came from different states. Under the able management of the chairman of the building committee, the social hall was planned and erected in about three weeks' time to a stage that could be comfortably used, though it was not fully completed in which to accommodate the crowd that was expected. To get the material on the ground and the hall ready for use was an almost superhuman undertaking, but it was accomplished by quick and decisive work. Soon all was in readiness and time had arrived and a three-day festival or homecoming was in progress. Tears were very near the surface in those few days of hearty hand clasps and reminiscence of bygone days. Almost a week in which to relive the past, a past that had brought the people together into a bond more closely knit 
than would have been possible in any other manner of living. Page 142, 93%. Sorry to pause it real quick right there. I'm still sick uh, during, you know, the, when I'm recording this. I'm actually sick right now, so I'm I'm like pausing it and going when I can, and then I pause it to cough, and I'm working on... And I've been up since like it's seven forty three AM on Saturday morning now. And I actually got up at four AM. So this has taken me quite a while to do this recording, but um but I'm happy to do it. So anyway, um we're on page one forty two. People coming home by the hundreds, every house was filled. Days had been spent in gathering and food supplies, in cooking and making other preparations. In practically every home, men and women visiting in homes and meeting on the street, men standing in groups reviewing the more weighty problems of the past or joking over some humorous incident recalled, women greeting each other as they wended their hay or their ways hither and thither, laughing, crying, but overjoyed at meeting once again after many years. As I reflected over that early period of my life, my heart's warmth, my heart warms with a a conscientious appreciation for its wholesome experiences and the integrity of the people, and I believe my views express the feelings of the great majority of those who remained with the enterprise to the finish. And quote, Utah Historical Quarterly, Volume 7, page 194. The cooperative spirit would soon be replaced by the cooperative uh, competitive spirit, money schemes, financiering, and all that goes with modern merchandising soon became incorporated within the Mormon economic system. United order among the Mormons would become a relic of the past with little more value than their hand carts, muskets, and prairie schooners. The United order was once the law of the Lord to a people making attempts to practice it. Now it gathers dust in books upon shelves of pioneer history. So that's the end of chapter 9. Uh, when we come back on, we will be in chapter 10. Now, we're really, really close to the end of the live streaming portion of the radio program. If you do have a question or a comment, you can call in right now at uh, 917-889-8827. Push 1 when you uh, come on the studio and I will bring you into the call screening room and you can ask your question or comment. That's 917-889-8827. And uh, you can also go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon and uh, ask your questions or make your comments in the chat room at that place during the live show. When we come back on the next program, we'll be starting on page 143 which is chapter 10 of the United Order, the tithes, the tithe is the Lord's. And I will read the first page 
a little bit more than a page, actually, but we'll read the first page to preview the next chapter, and then if we do have any phone calls, we'll take them at that point, and if not, we'll go to the end of the program. Uh, I don't know. I, it's really close to the end. You know, we've been on for, what, two hours now? Pretty close to two hours, so. The tithe is the Lord's, and all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, and that's in the Torah. And all the Torah means is the instructions. God gave us instructions in the Torah. Tithing was not a new law introduced by Moses, for it existed in the days of the patriarchs, even from the beginning of time, these tithes came from the annual increase of crops, herbs, etc. See Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22. Some of this 10% was for the assistance of the poor, the fatherless, and the widows, also to sustain the Levites, whose full time was devoted to administering the ordinances of the Lord. See Deuteronomy chapter 14. Verse 29, there is an important uh, important scripture indicating the close relationship between the tithing and the law of consecration and showing that they were both being practiced at the time of Abraham. From the inspired translation of the Bible, we read, quote, Wherefore Abraham paid unto him, speaking of Melchizedek, tithes of all he had and of all the riches which he possessed, which God had given him more than that which he had need, or his surplus. And it came to pass that God blessed Abraham and gave unto him riches and honor and lands for an everlasting possession for the inheritance, according to the covenant, or the consecration, which he had made, and according to the blessings wherewith Melchizedek had blessed him in his stewardship, and that's Genesis chapter 14, verses 39 through 41, page 144. So anyway, that is the end of that. So if we have anybody who's called in, the guest call-in number, like I said, is 917-889-8827, and the uh, chat room is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. Uh, Emmett or Kim, whoever is watching the studio, is there anybody in the chat room or on the uh, in the studio that has a question or comment? If not, um, let me know, and then we'll just go to that point. We'll probably, if we don't have anybody, we'll just uh, we'll just have the end music, and then we'll be back on tomorrow. Like I said, with the next portion of United Order. So, thank you for listening. Uh, yeah, no hey, one's I'm calling at... and no one's in the chat. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I had my microphone up. We will. Oh. <laughs> uh, just go ahead and play the uh, closing music. And uh, before you do that, thank um, You've got everything ready to go to bed now, right? You, you don't have to be staying up for anything. Or do you need to do something, or what are you doing? I have nothing I need to do. Yay. Oh, good. Okay. 
All right, uh, just make sure the plumber's coming over tomorrow, and um, just make sure that your bathroom upstairs is uh, appropriate for plumber activity. <laughs> yeah, Mom made Olivia do that already, so it's good. <laughs> okay, I need you to check it, though. That's what I'm saying. Oh, she had me do that, too. No. I, that's why I was saying I know it's good. <laughs> oh, okay, good deal. All right. Well, hi, everybody. Thank you for listening to the program. We'll try to come back on tomorrow with another program of Zion's Redemption Radio Network, Fundamentally Mormon. Thanks for listening. Take care, everyone. God bless and goodbye. Thank you.